This week we're going to look at Ruth and it's going to be a love story. I'm going to focus on the love story. So for the romantics in the room, it's your week, okay? It's the pride and prejudice moment. It is the boy meets girl. Or maybe I should say the young to middle-aged widow meets old man, uh, which is what the story is really about. But let's call boy meets girl. And I mean, if they were trying to meet up through the internet or something like that, Ruth might say, I'm a Moabite. I'm a widow. I seek a relationship with an older man for love and friendship and probably provision in the cultural context. Where Boaz might say, I'm an honorable gentleman looking for a widower, refugee, for a cross-cultural relationship. Probably not, but that's what this coming together is. Uh, And so we're going to read Ruth uh, 3 in a moment. But before we do, maybe a couple of comments. If you've ever read it, it has to throw up the question immediately, which is like, What is going on here? This looks a little dodgy. So, you know, dress up and go and lie, sneak in at night and lay at his feet. Hello, hello, what's going on here? Um, And um, the real danger probably reading this passage is that we read it through the cultural norms that we live with. And we live in a culture now that is over-sexualized. Everywhere you go, whatever you want to do, it's fine. If it's good for you, it's fine. And so we live in that kind of cultural soup all the time. And our danger is we read the passage through that. Where if you're aware of some of the more cultural norms of the day, I think what's going on here is just normal cultural uh, contextualization. Now, I wasn't there. So I don't actually know. I wasn't there, Gov. I wasn't there. But that's probably what's going on here. Why, why, why can I say that? Well, we know certain things about the context and the time. We know that Boaz is an honorable man. And we will read in a moment that Ruth was a noble of noble character. Uh, and Ruth is not acting out of rebellion. She's not breaking out from, you know, restrictive parental involvement. No, she's not in rebellion. In fact, she's following guidance from her mother-in-law. And most commentators conclude that when... um, uh, What's really going on is that Ruth is displaying that she wants to come under the protection of Boaz, uh, who is an older man. Now, what would happen normally in the culture of the day that if your husband died, you are without any provision. And so the cultural norm was for another man in the broader clan or family or or tribe to marry you. And therefore, in Ruth being married, provision for Ruth and for Naomi will be provided. Now, that seems very strange to our culture, doesn't it? You, You know, if one of your close relatives died... You know, I'm not thinking of marrying anyone else other than my wife, Deb. But that would have been just the way it was in that time. The other thing that's going on here, that it was someone else's responsibility first, a younger man, to be the guardian redeemer. Uh, And so what was happening is that Ruth is saying to Boaz, an older chap, I really got eyes for you. I want to marry 
you. So when it says, and we'll read it in context in a moment, spread the corner of your garment over me, Ruth is saying to Boaz, marry me. Ah, oh, it's a love story. Um, now, first point of application, if you're dating here, okay, don't, just ladies, just hear me, just ha- hang out with me for a moment here. Don't walk out, ask for your boyfriend to put a cloak around you, and then look him in the eye and say, I want you to marry me. You might want that, but you might scare him off, okay? So um, maybe we have to not over-apply the contextual issues that are particularly happening in this honor-shame culture. And you'll see as we read through, the reason that Ruth leads early, leaves early in the morning is because there's the honor-shame. And uh, if people knew then uh, Boaz's reputation and Ruth's reputation would be damaged. And so therefore, that is, I want to suggest to you what's going on in the background. Let's read the passage. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whom women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be a winnowing barley on the threshing floor. And when he lies down... Note the place where he is lying, and then go and undercover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. And when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. He's doing that because he's protecting his grain. Okay, so it's harvest time, and so he's probably worked hard through the day, and he's sleeping where the grain is. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Now, this is not a normal cultural experience for us. This has never happened to me. I hope it's never happened to you, actually, by the way. But <coughs> There was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a garden redeemer of our family. So there it is. It is, I would like to marry you, not a younger guy. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than which you have shown earlier, which is to do with the care of Naomi. You have not run after the younger men whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me your shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did, he poured in six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. And then he went back to town. And when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and asked, how did it go, my daughter? And then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, and he gave me three six measures of barley saying, 
Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Ah, a love story. It's fantastic, isn't it? It's a bold move by Ruth, but it's well received by Boaz. And you can tell it's well received because he, um, he wants Ruth to return to Naomi with barley. I mean, that is food to live on. Okay, so literally in the context, refugee, it is food to live on. But it's sending a bigger signal. It's saying, I got the message and I'm on board. And in fact, that's why Naomi can go, oh, well, let's see what happens today. I think he's going to sort it out. And what Boaz does, he's not a passive guy. You know, he's not kind of, he takes responsibility. I like guys that take responsibility, okay? On the whole, women naturally take responsibility and men can be a little passive, yeah? I think God likes men that will take responsibility and you can see that in the life of Boaz and we'll see how it pans out next week. Now, of course, this is such a different culture to the way that we date or how courtship happens in predominantly a Western culture. And different cultures have differing ways of dating. Uh, so when I first went to India, I was, it was surprised to see the arranged marriage. But in some cultures, that's the way the culture does it. It's not necessarily right or wrong. Excuse me. It works by pre-arrangement. Literally, the connection is between the families. The families kind of uh, agree. Now, I don't know about you, when I was a 16-year-old, I really wouldn't have wanted my mum and dad to arrange who I was going to marry. I mean, that would be like, you're kidding me. Okay, but that happens in many cultures. Uh, If I was a father of a 16-year-old daughter, I might have more sympathy with the idea. Because if you're a parent, you want your kids to marry well because you know that after following Jesus, the next most important decision you make in your life is who you marry And you're aware that that can be a blessing or it can create great pain. And so there's some of you that would like to get involved. you just got to be careful you don't get slip over into parental control. Okay, so that's the warning in that type of culture. For most of um, Western culture, until the 50s, there was another way we got together. It was called courtship. This is what would happen. The guy would come calling. This is Pride and Prejudice, you know. The guy would come calling. Basically, he would have to date the father and the family first before he got anywhere near the girl. That's how it was for many years. That's how people got together. And in other words, parents were involved. Now, this seems quite quaint to us now, us modern thinkers, Uh, But once again, it was there for the protection of the women. Why was it there for the protection of the women? Because fathers knew what boys and young men are like. Okay? And nothing's changed there, gentlemen, has it? (coughs) And so you basically dated the family before you got anywhere near the girl. Oh, back in the day. And then what happened was there was massive cultural shift in Western culture through the 60s especially. And there are many 
good things that happened through the 60s. You can, as Christians or as preachers or teachers, always be against things. I don't like that. There are many great things about the 60s and the sexual revolution, the involvement of uh, and the movement of feminism and equal rights for women. These are all very good things, but there are other things that came through through that cultural shift. The pill and the availability of abortion that provided women freedom like they'd never had before, and that has led to a cultural drift over the decades where we are in a very different place in our culture to where the scriptures are. Uh, And nowadays we live in a culture where it's basically date, have sex, maybe live together, maybe marriage, and if it doesn't work out, we'll divorce. That has become the kind of predominant culture we're a part of. I read an article this week that said things have changed a bit. You only sleep with someone on the third date now. You don't do it on the first date. I'm thinking, really? But that is the cultural soup, I call it, that we live in all the time. And so what's happened is that we've developed in our culture something called serial McNomy, where you, you, you're together, committed, you break up, you find another, together, committed, you break up. And that has become the cultural norm. Let me put it this way. It's hook up, shack up, break up. Hook up, shack up, break up. Well, the scripture teaches something totally different. It's challenging, isn't it? It teaches leave, it teaches cleave, and it teaches stay together. Yeah? Um, And so you leave your family, you cleave, basically means glue, which is about sexual intercourse and sexual union. That is in the context. Once you've left, then you come together and you stay together through whatever life throws at you. And we stay it, don't we? Through sickness and poor and health. And... But what's happened is that our culture has become a little bit kind of, we'll just, when it gets tough, we'll jump ship. And, yeah... That's caused huge emotional, uh, and I would go as far as sort of cultural breakdown in relationships and pain. So what our culture has done is come up with an idea. They said, what we'll do is we'll cohabit first. We realize marriage is challenging, and so we'll trial run it. We'll live together first, thinking that if you trial run it and see if it works, then when we do get married, we'll be okay because we've had a test. Unfortunately, statistics show that that's not the case. If you cohabit, you're more likely to divorce than if you didn't. Let me quote this quote from Deborah Dilton. According to recent statistics, couples who lived together before marriage experienced a 50% greater divorce rate than couples who didn't. Most unmarried couples who live together break up within five years, and the divorce rate for those who ultimately marry is 67%. I mean, it's shocking, isn't it? Compared to 45%, which is not very good, by the way, divorce rate for couples who didn't live together before marriage. This news is shocking to many couples who live together because they believe that living together will actually increase their chances of living happily ever after. And come on, we all want to live happily ever after. So you can see, at at least at one level, why you think the culture will try it. The trouble is, it doesn't bear fruit. It's stepping away from God's best way. We're moving away from a, a, a biblical view of commitment and covenant in marriage. 
my uh, favourite all-time book. I've recommended it before. I will recommend it again. I wish everyone who was married and everyone that would like to be married would read this book called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. You can see it's fairly well used, this book. It is a brilliant book because it takes biblical truth with skillful cultural analysis and partial application and is a great help from moving people away from a me marriage to us marriage. Because in our culture, marriage has become more about what can I get out of it rather than what can I give into it. And this has developed two conflicting tensions that people that are thinking of getting married and those that have got married live with. One is a pessimistic view of marriage. Gosh, look at how many people break up. It doesn't seem to work out. And so, man, this must be really difficult to do well. And there's a lot of pain. And my parents uh, uh, broke up. And that's impacted me as a person. So people have got pessimistic. They've got more cautious about marriage, which is why young people are delaying getting married later and later and later. Because they're thinking, the second thing is that there is a better person coming down the line. Because we've also more pessimistic, but we've also become more idealistic about it because, because of the influence of things like eHarmony. There is the perfect person out there for you. You're going to meet him. you just got to wait. They're going to be perfect. They're never going to wind you up. In fact, they're going to meet all your needs and you're not going to have to change at all. I mean, if you've been married at all in this room for any length of time, trust me. Trust me, it is not without challenge. Now, fortunately, in my marriage, Deb is perfect and I'm not. That's how it works, okay? But you take two odd people, we're all odd, and seriously, we've all got our funny ways, and put them together, you are going to have some conflict and difference. Just how you do life. And so if you have an expectation that this is also going to be always sunny and things like that, then you are setting yourself up for disappointment. And therefore what happens is you're setting yourself in the very foundation of what you want to live happily ever after. You're setting yourself up for trouble. And so you have to realize that it's about covenant and loving from a biblical lens, which is about how can I give to this person and lay my life down for this person, which is so in contrast to the culture and the cultural suit we live in all the time. Okay, I'm now going to uh, transition quickly and give you the Steve Tibbert top 10 tips for Christian dating. Not something I've done for a while. For some of you who are married here, it's still good to date the person you're uh, married to. But this is payback time for all the teaching on marriage that you get in a church, Okay. So just uh, go with it. Now, let me say, these are pastoral guidelines. They are not rules. Okay? You've got to work this out for yourself. I'm not saying this is, if you come to Kings, this is the way you do it. No, not. These are just, and some of them are just Tibbet household guidelines. Um, it's kind of like Naomi's advice to, um, to Ruth. So here we go. Guidelines, no more, no less. Firstly, if you are a parent here of teenagers... Stay involved in this one. There's still this kind of thing. Once they get to 12, you've got to stand back and give them space. What a, where did that come from? I mean, I've seen parents, they're more worried about how much TV their kids and what time they go to bed and whether they're doing their homework and things like that, but disengage when it comes to relationships. Really? 
This is so important. Stay involved. So in the Tibet household, we had a guideline. You cannot date. It was literally, I made the decision. You cannot date until you're 16. Hey, you, you, it's your choice. I'm not saying it's what you have to do. <coughs> My eldest son, when he was 16 and one week, found a girlfriend. Okay? That's what I think. That's what he did. That's what he did. He went to New Day and came back with a girlfriend. Yeah? Right, okay. Big parental mistake. Should have made it 18. Okay? Right? His two brothers watched what he did and thought, man, I ain't doing that because he's, they saw what happened. Because teenagers are teenagers. They've got the hormones of an adult, but they haven't got the character of one. Yeah? And so they're all over the place. And so what you can do is you can set them up from unnecessary pain. And so go out in groups and be friends with everyone. But when you get to 18 or 19, 21 especially, the Tibet household pastoral guideline is that it should be with purpose. In other words, is to find out if you're a Christian whether this is a person you want to be with. Thirdly, pastoral guideline is, of course, Many of us here are single and will remain single. And there are some huge advantages to being single. There really are. And uh, as I spoke on earlier in the year, there's equality, whether you're married here, your status is marriage, or whether you're single, before God and in the church. (coughs) But there's some real advantages in being single. Fourthly, be committed to Christ and grow as a person. Whether single or married or hoping to be married, then your ability to grow and your own self-awareness is really very helpful. Uh, date is not dating. So I said to my boys, if they saw a girl they liked, that's good eyesight, let's um, <coughs> invite her out for a coffee. And then I used to say this. I literally would say this. What I would say was, keep your hands to yourself. That's what I would say. I, I literally, I look at them, I say, keep your hands to yourself. Yeah? Look them in the eye, you know, in a loving, fatherly way, you know. Right? Because the scripture teaches, treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Okay? So from a Christian perspective, it's before you're married, treat them as sisters with absolute purity. Once you've left and you've cleaved, Get on down, you know, uh, that, uh, enjoy a lot. Yeah, that, that's because otherwise what happens is just think, these Christians, they just know everything. No, we're no, within boundaries, within covenant. When I was a youth pastor, this used to always be the question, how far is too far? And uh, increasingly I just say, that is the wrong question. The question is, are you treating her like a sister? Oh, right. She's like a sister. Oh, I don't know if I'd do that to my sister, yeah? <laughs> That's what the Bible says. Okay. Guys, sixthly, take responsibility. Make a move. My own view, seven, is do not date a non-Christian because are, particularly after the age of 18 to 21, it should be with purpose. It's going. As Christians, it should be going somewhere. Is this the one I should enter into covenant relationship with? Eighthly, Look at what God has put in front of you. Our obsession with beauty means that sometimes you make a bad decision. Yeah? Inner beauty is what you want to look for. Trust me. 
You really do. Now, my wife, Deb, she's a, she's a stunner. I know that. Okay? Well, I think she is anyway. So I don't mind. There's no, nothing wrong with chemistry and finding the person attractive. But trust me, if you married the most beautiful woman in the ro- world and she was a right moaner, you ain't going to be happy. Honestly. I don't know. If she drips like a tap, you don't want to do that. And he might look hench, but if he's not kind, yeah. I mean, if he looks good, you know, and he works out, and I look at some of you young guys, you obviously work out more than me, and you look like man. Somehow, I can't even get my hand around your shoulder. I mean, you're looking good. But I tell you what, if you're not tender, and you don't cherish, man, more do I want to be with you. Socrates says, beauty is a short-lived reign. So, oh, Ruth, noble character, so... Look for things like stability and humor and loyalty and generosity. Ah, oh, now that's attractive. Man, you want to be married to a woman that's generous. That's a great thing, yeah? I'm just going to capture that thought and not say it publicly because you want a generous wife, don't you? Amen? And then, uh, so look. Look for those characteristics. Ninthly, just a comment on um, online dating. Christians, is it okay to go looking for someone online? Yes. This is a good idea, I think to myself. And if I wasn't happily married 27 years uh, in a different generation, yeah, why not? Okay. In fact, we think it's such a good idea, we've provided pastoral guideline for it. So if you're single here and you'd like to know, how do I do this safely? There you go. We're a cutting edge in this church, I tell you. <laughs> have a look round, but you can also have a look online. Ah. But just one additional pastoral comment. From some experience now, we observe that people who are single that really want to get married might for a season delay before going online, see if it kind of happens. But if it doesn't, then they will. And by the time they make that decision, they are way down the line emotionally. They want to find someone and they want to get married. And so what can happen is they meet someone online. It kind of happens. They meet someone else who uh, really wants to get married. And so they've gone online. They meet and they meet. And very quickly, within three months, it's like, we want to get married. And they end up in front of one of the pastors and they go, oh, we want to get married. We've found each other. We've been, how long have you been together? Three months, but we want to be married in another three, yeah? It's like, and everything that we're saying, us old, boring people who know something, by the way, okay, about this, go, whoa, it's great. Well, why don't we just slow it down a bit? Why don't we just, you know, why don't you just slow down? Let's really make sure there's good foundations and... And things like that. Oh no, we want to go ahead. You won't marry us, all you horrible pastors. No, we're loving pastors. We're trying to save you from making a big mistake. Which might be the right mistake, of course. And so just be aware of that. Because we want this to go well with you. And uh, so we want to help you get a good foundation. And then uh, lastly, <coughs> on the top ten tibet... Um, Tips is pray and seek the counsel of others. Whew. Some of you didn't expect to get that this morning. Now, if you are in a serious relationship, maybe you've been dating for a long time, you're in your 20s, you've been dating for a couple of years, or you, uh, 
you are engaged or you're thinking about getting engaged, I want to invite you to come to a course we run called Relational Matters. It's a fantastic course. The next one's happening on the 15th of October. And it's just a great way to get some input and ensure that uh, whether you end up getting married or not, that you've got some good foundations in place. Um, Lastly today, Boaz and Ruth. Wow, this is a challenging marriage. Did you know that? It's cross-cultural. So not only are you dealing with the differences of just these two people, but you're dealing with the cross-cultural differences. And if you are here in a cross-cultural marriage, you're learning this one because expectations that are shaped by upbringing, history, and tradition are different for different cultures. And so you keep clashing, potentially. This is between a Joe and a Moabite. There's difference in age. It's quite a difference in age. And also... This is Ruth's second marriage, but she's a widower. Now, we know that a number of you here are in your, you're in your second marriage. You're very welcome. It's fantastic to have you here. Let me just say that right up front. The dangers with a second marriage is that it, in sometimes it can be more challenging than the first because there are additional contributing factors. Sometimes there is unresolved hurt or unforgiveness from the first marriage, which you carry into the relationship. And before you know it, you're projecting it on your new person that you, a year before, absolutely loved. And now... Sometimes there are additional challenges of children and support of children in past relationships. So when it comes to a second marriage, you probably need more preparation and talking through then you do in a first, but your danger is you've been married before, so you think you know how this goes, and you think you've learned from the mistakes you made in the first. Oh, I hope you have. But my partial appeal would be you to, again, <coughs> is go with your eyes open and get support. And, um, you know, building a great marriage doesn't happen by chance. It's an investment. It takes time. It's, it's growing your own self-awareness and dying to your own agenda sometime. And it's great to get all the skills you need to do it well. So quickly in summary, some of the ways that we try and help marriages handle differences at King's is through (coughs) (coughs) relational matters. Next one on the 15th of October. I've got the online dating booklet. That's around somewhere. You'll find it on the welcome desk over there if you'd like a copy. The marriage course. Deb and I speak on the marriage course. We've just done that recently. And then we run another course that's starting in October again for Restored Lives. This is where people have gone through the pain of separation from a long-term serious relationship. And they are just trying to process that. We normally, it's really sad, but probably in a church of our size, not unexpected, always have a handful of people that are walking through that season of life. And we want to stand with you as you go through that. The next course starts (coughs) in October. Uh, If you'd like to know more, go over to the welcome desk. We'd love to uh, follow you up. Lastly, and now this really is a finally, like all good preachers has three last points, is the point of legacy. We know with Boaz and Ruth, what happens is that that they're in the line of David and also ultimately in the line of King Jesus. So out of this coming together, out of this refugee Connecting with an old guy comes King David and ultimately 
King Jesus. So if you are married here, or you hope to be married, or you soon to be married, can I encourage you to hang in there for the good days and the more challenging days, because there is a legacy beyond your relationship. It is more broadly into the community and the family that you're a part of, uh, the church you're a part of, and particularly if you have children, it has the potential to provide a fantastic foundation for them to flourish. And so, um, remember that ultimately the relationship isn't just about you guys. It's about those around you. And as we see in Boaz and Ruth, King David and ultimately King Jesus is something that they played a massive part in, in the lineage of the Messiah.